cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting to the Matrix on January the 23rd, 2009. I always suggest to newcomers to look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And on the website, you'll find hundreds of hours of talks I've given in the past, which concern us all because I try to go into the histories of the big system in which we live and how it became to be this way. And I try and show you the powers behind it and by using their own documentation, I show you where they intend to take us all and why as well. Also look into Alan Watt, EU, where you can download transcripts of these talks and they're written in the various languages of Europe. You can print them up and pass them around to your friends or read them at your leisure. Also look into cuttingthroughmatrix.com website and you can see the items I have for sale. That keeps me going. I don't ask for payment from any of the shows I've been on, and the ads you hear on the shows I am on uh, go towards paying the bills for the stations and the staff and so on, very expensive business. You can also donate as well, and release donations from the same few people that tend to keep me going this far. So it's up to you. If the information is of value to you, you can donate And if not, then listen to someone else. That's freedom. This last while, I've been going into the techniques of control of the minds of most of humanity. I've gone into how the marketing engineers basically designed and gave us the culture, especially in the Western countries, mainly in the U.S., based on consumerism and that Bernays, the nephew of Freud is accredited with starting off this science in a big way but he shouldn't be given so much acclamation because he wasn't the originator of propaganda by any means it was being well studied in a previous century and many centuries before that too at least in the 1800s various books came out on the behavior of the masses Much of it was done by the Marxist groups who needed the masses to get their goals to come to fruition, to be achieved. I've also shown you how another group, a combination of groups really, we call them circles that are all intertwined and you have to visualize them much like you see the Olympic flag. Circles triangulating with other circles, intersecting with other circles. And that's a system that has been planning the centuries. How old it is, you can trace it back for hundreds of years. I've been reading from Professor Carl Quigley, who gives you the beginnings of one part of it, another phase of it, I would say, starting with Cecil Rhodes, who supposedly was so enthused by the lectures he got at Oxford University by Dean Ruskin, 
is that he came up with the idea all on his own to create a, a British Empire system that became a nucleus of a world system. It spread the same culture and system across the whole planet. And ultimately, of course, the dream was to become a world government. This was taken up by Lord Alfred Milner and his group and the Round Table Societies. That's what I'm talking about. It's circles and circles. They also have inner circles and very few people, even the higher members, are, un- are unaware who the top people are and quickly admits that to himself. And they're still going at it yet. Every treaty we've got comes from the same groups. We're back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. As Mr. Rockefeller always says, if you don't know history... You don't know what's happening. You won't know why. And it's quite correct, because what we get today is nothing but propaganda. Very carefully engineered propaganda, because you understand the workings of the human mind and how we come to conclusions. And therefore, really, under the many guises they go under, they could be called the conclusion makers, because we come to their conclusions. This group, as I say, was involved in setting up the basis for a North American Union. They still are. They're the ones who draft up the agreements that are signed every year. The last one is to be signed in 2010 between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. They came out openly and declared such in 2005 on CBC Television Canada. And it's astonishing, in a sense, that the major media uh, allowed them on to say their piece and just tell the public why we must integrate to compete with Europe. And yet here's the same group that was behind the unification of Europe beginning a long time ago. Because a hundred years ago, that was one of their main objectives. If you tie it in with Karl Marx, who wrote about the trading blocks that would come in the future, under world government, three regional trading blocks primarily. At least that's how it would end up with a far eastern block, a complete European block, and also the American block under a world government. These are the same boys who have never changed their directions, never ever changed their directions as to where they've been going. That's something, again, that Quigley and others have mentioned, that foundations can hire and retire generations of people all employed on the same mandate. So it's not hard to see how they do it. What is difficult to understand is how some of the technocrats, the big players, can work their entire lives and never get fed up with it. They never put their feet up and say, I'm going to go fishing, Martha, and retire. The Kissingers, to the technocrats, the Kissingers, the Maurice Strongs, the Brzezinskis, all these characters are working and jet-setting across the planet, giving talks still on the same agenda. Same agenda. And they will claim it's for world peace, but then when you go into Carl Quigley's books, the Anglo-American establishment, 
and Tragedy and Hope, a history of the world in our time, you'll see that this, this particular group it has different branches of it, specializing in different areas, in their own records, because Quigley was a historian who was allowed to get a hold of their records and update their history for them. In their own records, they admit that they were, in a way, involved in the setup of many of the wars that plagued the 20th century. They were all for Vietnam initially, and then later on they were against Vietnam, and that's the way they play the game. They were responsible for the setting up of the League of Nations, and when it had run its course, they then turned against it and demanded a new system called the United Nations. They set up the United Nations. In my talks, I've mentioned how the CIA and many of its members were also members of these same roundtable societies, Council on Foreign Relations, intertwined completely with the foundations that financed them. And that really, for at least, and probably longer, probably since the beginning of what we thought was democracy, we've never actually had it. Democracy is too fragile, they would claim, to be left to the people. But to remember, too, where the, the top members come from, they don't come from ordinary families or even middle-class families. They come from the ruling elite, the established elite. How long this established elite has been in existence is difficult to say. Did they set up in the 1700s an outfit that would eventually take over incredible financing to become the major bankers because their sons were all involved in these groups and worked tirelessly towards their, their ends? It's more than just a, a side play of politics. It's a method and a system to alter and shape all of society and eventually bring it into this new scientific age, some will call it scientific socialism. And when you go into their old, old records, you find they're completely intertwined with this cry that we hear today. They've been shouting this for a long, long time, for well over 100 years, sustainability. And we have eugenics coupled with it as well. And remember, Quigley had to be a member to get access to the records and therefore he's also an apologist for them. He lets a lot out of the bag in his books. His plates were, for the books actually were, um, bought over and then broken up so they, would t they wouldn't keep republishing it. They didn't want so much of this out of the bag. But it was too late because others got a hold of it and copied it, and there's still original books uh, circulating in libraries unless they've been all recalled. Universities definitely have original copies. When you think of what they got up to, in the fact, to say from the very beginning, their inception, at least as far back as quickly goes, they were the ones that created the Boer War, this private group of people, a private foundation, basically, a, a society, and he calls it a secret society, and he said it was justly called that. It was very secretive. But they started the Boer War, which killed an awful lot of people. They, they got Britain involved in it by, by setting it up in such a way that the reporters they brought over with them would report lies back to the British government. 
so that Britain had to send troops out through what they thought was to protect the settlers who were being massacred. It was the other way around. The Cecil Rhodes group hired a bunch of guys and they attacked Jamestown and slaughtered a bunch of people. It was the other way around. And that's how they started off this organization by intrigue and deception. And then when you followed their history down through the years, they literally had a hand in all publishing. Now, we're so used to data being thrown at us, we don't inquire where it comes from, and very seldom do we ask what's the spin on it, what's, what's the conclusion we're supposed to have at the end of it. It's admitted in Quigley's books that they had their hand in pretty well all of the academic books put out there so that if you were getting history, you would get their version of history. And their version of history is always written in the same slant that humankind is just too unstable, that it has to be mastered by an intellectual elite who must accept their mastery. That's, what you're in, that's how you end up thinking. And when you go into many of their members and their circles, as I say, all intertwined, they were pushing socialism. Remember Carl Quigley said himself that most people thought the communists were doing most of this work in the United States, all these far-left movements. They didn't know that it was a council on foreign relations that was behind it, funded by the big foundations. It appeared to be communistic to the outsider, all left, far-left, meaning tendencies. And they did the same in every country, including Britain. When you look at the founding people of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, like the Astor family, these are the same family with their foundation that was also funding the Fabian Society. You go into the founders of the Fabian Society and you have H.G. Wells, a propagandist again for this group. He was the one who coined the term in World War I to get young men enthused. Young men can be very idealistic when they think they're fighting for a just cause. And the slogan became the war to end all wars. You couldn't get more idealistic than that. But Wells is also the man who dreamed up the idea and Bernays would be very proud of him and publicized it and got it through all the newspapers through the Royal Institute of International Affairs or because of them since they owned all the newspapers, that the young men who wouldn't join should be shamed into joining by their girlfriends and their fiancés who would wear a white feather in their cap. That's good psychological warfare or manipulation. They understood propaganda perfectly well. And as I said before, Bernays himself could not have accompanied President Wilson around on the peace campaign to set up the League of Nations, which was again in their own books here. The Anglo-American establishment was set up by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations. It couldn't have happened. He couldn't have got around to meet those high circles without being part of it himself. So propaganda was not a new thing at all. It's a science. These sciences are perfectly well understood. You wonder why Adolf Hitler held back at Dunkirk 
you have to look into, again, the Anglo-American establishment because the CFR and Royal Institute of International Affairs was writing a lot of the script for this whole thing. They'd met with the top German leaders before the war and given them lots of assurances. And Carl Quigley said here that they were behind allowing Germany to take Czechoslovakia as a pawn, basically. And then when you go into the, the double game they're always playing to achieve their ends, from the end of World War I to World War II, they were propping up Germany against the Soviet Union and hoped that one day they eventually made attack Russia, go eastwards, which is exactly what Hitler did. Be back with more after this break. Because I, I think the people of Europe, the average 
person in Europe uh, never ever had dreamt of it. So who are we, our age-old plan? But eventually he was brought in as prime minister to the higher workings of, obviously. And he he simply may have been peeved that a higher part of the circle had kept him out of the picture because in 1946 in Zurich, Winston Churchill's speech was given to the academic youth. And it says, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored today to, by being received in your ancient university by the address which is given me on your behalf and which I greatly value. I wish to speak to you today about the tragedy of Europe, this noble continent comprising on the whole the fairest and most cultivated regions of the earth, enjoying a tempering equitable climate is the home of all the great parent races of the Western world. He goes on to say it's the fountain of Christian faith and Christian ethics and so on. It's very important at that time to use religion in your propaganda. This is the origin of most of the culture, the arts, the philosophy and science, both of ancient and modern time. If Europe were once united in the sharing of its common inheritance, there would be no limit to the happiness, to the prosperity and the glory which is three or four million people would enjoy. Yet it is from Europe that have sprung that series of frightful nationalistic quarrels originated by the Teutonic nations in their rise to power, which we have seen in this 20th century and even in our own lifetime wreck the peace and mar the prospects of all mankind. And what is the plight to which Europe has been reduced? Some of the smaller states have indeed made a good recovery, but over wide areas a vast quivering mass of tormented, hungry, careworn and bewildered human beings gape at the ruins of their cities and their homes and scan the dark horizons for the approach of some new peril, tyranny or terror. I think it's only to talk about, uh, again, more tyranny, terror and babbles of voices and so on, which is getting to the point. The point is, of course, that now with the threat of the atom bomb, they, they couldn't have another war. That sounds very nice and idealistic. We don't want wars, do we? But then he goes on to talk about the unification of Europe as the only answer to it. Yet all the while there is a remedy which, if it were generally and spontaneously adopted by the great majority of people in many new lands, would, as if by a miracle, transform the whole scene and would in a few years make all Europe or the greater part of it as free and as happy as Switzerland is today. What is the sovereign remedy? It's to recreate, to recreate the European family to recreate the European family, or as much of it as we can, and to provide it with a structure under which it can dwell in peace and safety and freedom. We must build a kind of United States of Europe. Doesn't that sort of harken back to Marx again? And to Benjamin Franklin? Remember, Franklin was way into the revolutionary idea, of course, as a founding father. He's also the ambassador to France. He was the head, the Grand Master of the Nine Sisters Lodge. He initiated Voltaire into that lodge. And they were all about revolution. I'll be back with more of this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
I'm Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix, trying to find out why things are happening in our lifetime actually happen, only to find out we're planned long before we were born, and much intrigue and manipulation went into creating the wars. In fact, Carl Quigley mentions in the Anglo-American establishment how the Milner Road Society, the Royal Super International Affairs, Council of Foreign Relations, propped up Hitler right up to the war started. We all know that, again, the same characters who ran and owned the big foundations that were funding, these particular groups also created IG Farben, which created the German war machine. You think of the, the length of time Adolf Hitler was in. It was only a few years from destitution to having a massive military machine. Where did that come from? Read the trials and punishment of I.G. Farben, amongst other books. That's quite the trail. Because you'll find it's the same people that's been behind everything. And they're still at this world empire business today. And if it takes wars to get there, they'll have them. Getting back to this speech by Winston Churchill, he says we must build a kind of United States of Europe. In this way, only with hundreds of millions of toilers or will they be able to regain the simple joys and hopes which make life worth living? The process is simple. All that is needed is the resolve of hundreds of millions of men and women to do right instead of wrong and to gain as a reward blessing instead of cursing. Much work, ladies and gentlemen, has been done upon this task by the exertions of the Pan-European Union. This is the precursor they tried for it, which owes much to Count Kudenhoff Kalergi, and which was commanded by the services of the famous French patriot statesman Aristide Bryant. He then goes on to talk about the League of Nations. He says, The League of Nations did not fail because of its principles or conceptions. It failed because these principles were deserted by those states who had brought it into being. And he's calling them states, he remember, not nations. It failed because the governments of those days feared to face the facts and act while time remained. This disaster must not be repeated. There is therefore much knowledge and material to which to build and also bitter dear bought experience to stir the builders because their builders love building bridges and things. I was very glad to read the newspapers two days ago that my friend President Truman had expressed his interest and sympathy with this great design, great design and building. There is no reason why a regional organization of Europe, they call it regions today under the United Nations, should in any way conflict with the world organization of the United Nations. On the contrary, I believe that the larger synthesis will, will only survive if it is founded upon coherent national groupings. There's already a natural grouping in the Western Hemisphere. We British have our own Commonwealth of Nations. Now going back to the Anglo-American establishment, uh, the League of Nations and eventually the United Nations were to be established on the British, well, the British Commonwealth of Nations. And the term Commonwealth of Nations was termed, as Quigley said, by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, this private organization that works outside of democrat democracy, although it uses their institutions since it pretty well dominates them. He says, these do not weaken, on the contrary, they strengthen the world organization. They are, in fact, its main support. And why should there not be a European group which would give a sense of enlarged patriotism and common citizenship? European citizenship to the distracted people, peoples of this turbulent and mighty continent. 
and why should it not take its rightful place with other great groupings and help to share the onward destinies of men, help to shape the onward destinies of men, the grand design. That's my term, from theirs, of course, from other books. In order that this should be accomplished, there must be an act of faith in which millions of families speaking many languages must consciously take part. Then he goes into, they always use history to try, and again, this is explained in Carol Quigley's books, The American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope, how they'll always slant history to make it seem that, that we'll be moving towards a natural unification of the planet, and that all religions are working in some metaphysical way towards this amalgamation, and that all political processes or some kind of evolving by themselves towards this same goal. So they spin their history to leave you again with a conclusion, which is a technique of propaganda. And as I say, these same people today are telling us that we must unite under a planetary system because the new war is against the new weapon really uh, is, is uh, or, or war is, is man against the planet and the planet against man. The Gia concept, as you say. It's, it's quite something to, to really understand what's happening because we live in propaganda pretty well all of the time. How far back do these groups go in societies? Well, you have to go back into the 1800s at least, to get an idea when they were doing a lot of writing about revolution, because it's to do, really, with revolution. And you must go into the writings of people like Robespierre and Voltaire, Bakunin, Bakunin and Trotsky, uh, Lenin, all these people who talked about world systems, world societies, using the socialist front. Now, socialism is an interesting term because... It's like every other term that's used from God to socialism to get many different versions according to who you ask. And it's an article here actually ties right in with this. I was punching it up right now. Let's go back to H.G. Wells, who was an official propagandist of this sect. And he says, Nominally a socialist. We all think socialism is good. Social is a nice word. They use these terms in propaganda that you'll relate to. Social is nice. We're all social beings. Socialist ist is, again, like ism. It's a doctrine. Many people at the bottom think that if you're paying taxes into the system, you're supposed to get the services back. And that sounds pretty fair. If they're going to take it off you, why don't they give it back in services? But it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Now remember, before the revolutions within the 1700s, 1800s, governments simply taxed you and got nothing back. Nothing at all back. We don't realize that even in Britain, there was no welfare system pretty well up until into the 50s. There was no unemployment insurance. That came through socialist movements from the bottom. They were on strike and the whole nation came to a standstill because of miners, stuff like that. That's how they had to negotiate with those who ruled. They take things for 
for granted today without knowing what really happened before, not so long before. And this is a fact too. The only reason that you had all, all of these different schemes, including drug plans at work and stuff like that, little perks, was so that the, the West could say to their workers, see, we're pretty good here, we're, we're pretty humane. And if you've noticed since the Berlin Wall came down, they've all been gradually taken away until there's very little left at the bottom. That's not by chance. H.G. Wells, though nominally a socialist, was always in bed with the major Darwinist thinkers of the time. They all were. In this paragraph of New Worlds for Old, he talks about the theoretical similarities of what he terms true and noble anarchism. This is also the higher stage of communism Marx and anarchists refer to. He states laboriously we mean to destroy false ideas of property and self. Property and self. Where do you find that same doctrine? Where do you find that? If you go into the writings of Pike and others, you'll find them there. The false ideas of property and self. Now communism too. Marxism blamed everything on property. Yet you go back into the religions down through the ages and the accompanying religions that always accompany them. Often termed too vaguely as mystery religions, we all go, ooh, and on, we're scared and we're intrigued and so on. But there's always, there have always been fraternities down through the ages that carry forth ideas. Plato was a member, he writes in his own books that he was a member of these sects. He studied in Egypt, that's where he was taught. His mentor was given hemlock for supposedly stirring up the young for revolution. Revolution. Through revolution to get their way. And Plato talked about a utopia for his own class, the intellectual elite, where they wouldn't have to maintain their own property. The state would maintain it for them. So he had an abolition of private property. Having private property himself, he said, was a problem. You have to repair stuff, keep it up, the upkeep of it. Replace stolen goods, fix things that break. Why not get those that you rule over to do it for you? And you're, you're living a life of luxury. But all the peasants below wouldn't have the same life of luxury. So this same theme has come down through the ages. Wells himself said that Plato... Was his favorite author. And the book, his favorite book was The Republic by Plato. False ideas of property and self. What's your, what's your false ideas of the self? The false ideas of yourself. Well, the old idea was that man was the pinnacle of all creation. And when atheism was pushed to the fore, using Darwinism, we see the outcomes today. You have people, you have people like Richard Dawkins being promoted all over the planet for his statements that there's no God. Again, just taking up the banner from Nietzsche and others. And, he, and a big foundation behind him is funding him to put banners across London's buses saying there's no God, get used to it. Why would you care so much about what other people thought or believed 
to to this extent to put banners across buses. Why? This person obviously could not live and let live. So what you're up against is a totalitarian mindset. And that's where utter, pure, complete atheism will take you. He also wrote the book, The Selfish Gene. And we laugh at this and think, well, so what? Well, you see, his whole thesis on the, on the selfish gene, meaning you're not a person, you're just a combination of billions of, of cells all fighting for their own survival. And whatever thought that you have, whatever you appear to be, is a culmination of all these genes fighting each other. That's the nihilism that it brings you to. And nihilistic thought like this, and you, you have alienation, and they call it that at the top, alienation, when you're so far removed from some will to keep you alive. You become nihilistic, and nihilistic people can destroy many. And that's the type we have at the top. That theory, by the way, of you're not a person, you're just the outcome of billions of cells competing for survival, was adapted into game theory and used by the CIA and the RAND Corporation through their computers to analyze all of us as people. And I'm sure we're all very disposable because we're, we're really nothing special anymore. Which is a freak of nature. H.G. Wells, New Worlds for Old, 1908, says, The anarchist world, I admit, is our dream. The anarchist world, I admit, is our dream. He's speaking on behalf of the Fabian Society. Remember George Bernard Shaw that wrote Man and Superman, meaning the old man must die off, a new type will be created, funded by the Astors, who are also part of their own super international affairs and funded them as well. I admit it's our dream. We do believe, well I at any rate believe this present world, this planet will someday bear a race. It will bear a race beyond our most exalted and tremendous dreams. A race begotten of our wills and the substance of our bodies. A race, so I have said it, who will stand upon the earth as one stands upon a footstool and laugh and reach out their hands amidst the stars. But the way to that is through education and discipline and law. Education, discipline, and law. That's the methods they would use to indoctrinate towards their ideal. Socialism is the preparation for that higher anarchism. Painfully, laboriously, we mean to destroy false ideas of property and self, eliminate unjust laws and poisonous and hateful suggestions and prejudices create a system of social right-dealing and a tradition of right-feeling and action. I guess that's the right stuff, eh? What kind of right does he belong to? Socialism is the schoolroom of true and noble anarchism, wherein by training and restraint we shall make men free. Or make free men, he actually says here. Free from what? For being you. I don't know if you saw the outcome of the great experiment of the Sovietization system that was carried out for an awful long time, where authors and poets were dragged up because of certain words they'd use. They were not in line with the proletariat ideal. And you were cross-examined, and books were not allowed to be published if a wrong phrase or word was put in there. Everything had to be for the one system, towards the one system. There was no self there was no self. And what does he say here? To destroy the self. In the cold light of day, 
H.G. Wells calls for eugenics and dictatorship through committees and can be seen as the hell so clearly portrayed in Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984. However unappealing to anarchists this vision may be, H.G. Wells' claims are no more objectionable than Kropotkin's claim for the beehive and read who Kropotkin was because these are very important people because their systems have all been combined. Claim for the beehive, that was his beehive as his vision of anarcho-syndicalism, they called it. Again, more circles coming together. Although an anarchist may reject scientific socialism, it is a rejection of its means, not its ends. Bakunin is very clear on this in Catechisms of a Revolutionist. That was printed in 1869. What does it say in that book? Revolutionist is a, a, now listen to this, the revolutionist is a doomed man. This is a dedication here that H.G. Wells put it in his own book, 1984, is the oath they swear, showing you what the true, the true revolutionist was. He has no private interests, no affairs, sentiments, ties, property, nor even a name of his own. His entire being is devoured by one purpose, one thought, one passion, the revolution. All it was, was to be totally destroyed. Heart and soul, not merely by word, but by deed, he has severed every link with the social order and with the entire civilized world, with the laws, good manners, conventions, and morality of that world. I'll be back with it, with more of this, because very important stuff is happening today, after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix and I'm reading part of a, a book, 1869, Catechism of a Revolutionist by Michael Bakunin and Sergei Nechayev. They continue where I left off because this is the Catechism of a Revolutionist. This is the true belief of the true revolutionist. He is its merciless enemy of society and the world. He is its merciless enemy and continues to inhabit it with only one purpose, to destroy it. He despises public opinion. He hates and despises the social morality of his time. What have we seen happening through the whole 20th century? And remember what I said from Carol Quigley when the CIA were into the culture creation business and the same members in the CIA were also in the CFR. And people thought it was all the communists who were bringing the system down and changing the mores of the public. He despises public opinion. He despises social morality of his time, its motives and manifestations. Everything which promotes the success of the revolution is moral. Everything which hinders it is immoral. The nature of the true revolutionist excludes all romanticism, all tenderness, all ecstasy, all love. As I say, you'll find that Orwell put that in his book 1984 when Brian gives him the dictionary which has the, the double pages inside you to peel off and find out the, the revolutionist's Bible basically inside of it with the same ideal. H.G. 
GWL sees the New World Order as occurring basically outside his lifetime. Bakunin sees this process and the goal of extinction of self and property as his most urgent revolutionary aim. In no swap more way recalls Orwell's fictional recruitment meeting for the Brotherhood in 1984, and that's the recruitment meeting idea. The Brotherhoods, in a sense, initiators expected to throw all caution to the wind. Because he says in that book, you're prepared to give your lives, prepared to commit murder, commit acts of sabotage which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people. Betray your country to foreign powers. What is it Quigley says in the Anglo-American establishment? These people literally have been involved in all the major wars, even setting them up, guiding them. What is it they say when, they, when 9-11 came down at the CFR meeting that's flashed all over all their different videos on 9-11? Well, you see the CFR meeting, and it said we can use this tragedy to our, to our own good use, our, our, our own agenda. They always take things and use it for their agenda. Any disaster will do, because they do have an agenda. Akunin was unabashed in his encouragement for the worst excesses of the Brotherhood's land-based piracy. As we wrote in 1869, the comrades of the International Working Men's Association. And he goes on to talk about the middle classes and so on, and Freemasonry, because there's no doubt about it. Look at all your crests everywhere. All the countries that came out of revolution. You've always got the pyramid. You've got obelisks all over the place. You have the phoenix. And what does the phoenix symbolize? A new system arising every few hundred years out of the ashes of the old. Was it that Bakunin said he destroy everything that's familiar? They hate it to bring in the new. I'll be back with more next week on the same topic and going deeper. And so from Hamish myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.